Well, we are in the middle of a series um, about the book of uh, Matthew. Um, We've called it Jesus is King. And we're just slowly working our way through um, the the first book of the New Testament. Um, It's basically a theological biography of Jesus' life. It explains who he is and what he came to do, um, and as well as what he did. Um, And so it's a marvelous and incredible book that we've been seeing um, just so many profound truths in And we come to the point where Jesus has started preaching and teaching. He's been healing a whole bunch of people, casting out demons. He's doing all these miracles, and crowds of people are gathering around him. And so Jesus gathers them all, and and they kind of come to him, and he's on the top of this sort of mountain-ish area, and he begins to teach. Um, And we know of this sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount um, because of where he said it. But you've got to imagine sort of Jesus' disciples at the front of him, the the 12 young men that he's called out from their occupations of being tax collectors and fishermen, and they've decided to follow him. And then you've got to imagine maybe hundreds, maybe a thousand or more crowd members outside in a setting like this, no shelter, I'm assuming, listening in to this incredible sermon. And in this sermon, Jesus is not just giving kind of vague, like, spiritual wisdom or philosophy for life, he's laying down a manifesto, a manifesto for what the kingdom of heaven ought to look like. And he's saying, basically, if you want to join me, this is the type of person you need to be, and this is the type of life you need to live. He sets the standard incredibly high, and he's also critiquing and going against, really, what was sort of the popular righteousness of the day. And so last week, Richard preached on um, this big section in chapter 6, verses 1 um, through to 18 or 17, where you have Jesus denouncing the the big religious leaders of his time. They were kind of performing their religion in front of other people to be seen by others rather than promoting their religion toward God to be seen by him and rewarded by him. And so... Richard kind of gave the big overview of that section, but today I wanted to highlight just one of those elements, which was the element of prayer. Um, Jesus gives in this little section a format or a template, if you like, of how we ought to pray. And so let us read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, and we're going to see, we're going to have a masterclass in prayer from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll read the section beforehand, verses 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Um, if you know me at all, you'll know I am not a cook. Uh, my wife, and I often talk about cooking because Maddie's a great cook and loves to cook and is, you know, very proficient in it. I don't do any of the cooking at home, basically, apart from flipping some things on the barbecue every now and again. One thing I especially do not do is baking um, because when you bake, you need to follow the recipe exactly. You need to get it precise, the measurements, the ingredients. There's no sort of like at least as far as I'm aware, this is what Maddie tells me, and from my experience of baking, you can't kind of fudge it a little bit. You've got to get it right. There's kind of a science behind it. Uh, and so I don't bake because it's too hard. I miss all the steps. I put things in at the wrong time. It takes me too long between steps. It, it just doesn't work. However, recently uh, for my birthday, a whole bunch of people put together and bought me an epic present. They bought me the master-built 560 Gravity Series Charcoal Smoker. Okay, so I'm not a baker, I'm a smoker now. And I was a little bit nervous when I found out about the present because I was thinking, man, I am so inept at cooking. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. But when I started to research the kind of fundamentals and principles of smoking meat, um, I realized that it's actually not a precise science. In fact, the way to kind of they teach you to do smoking is not so much about getting these recipes right or having exact right ingredients or anything like that. It's more about mastering the kind of feel for it, the, the kind of broad foundational principles of getting the right temperature and time. Uh, but more than that, it's actually about kind of knowing the meat, getting a feel for it. So when you're cooking a big old brisket, you know, they say you can do it for eight hours or 12 hours or 14 hours. But there's only one way to tell, and that's by touching it and feeling it and looking at it. It's meant to be soft like butter. And so I was quite hardened when I found out that, you know, the process of smoking was more to do with getting the feel of it, kind of ad-libbing, making it up, you know, working with it, um, with the key foundational principles, rather than following a strict method or ingredients list. And I've been watching lots of, you know, kind of masterclass videos on YouTube to try and find out how to do it better. And as we come to the Lord's Prayer today, it's sort of like Jesus' masterclass on prayer to his new followers and his new community. But the Lord's Prayer, although it looks like a recipe card, a baking ingredient, this is just what you have to say, it actually isn't, it doesn't function like that. The Lord's Prayer is more like smoking meat than baking. Uh, because the way the Lord's Prayer actually functions is that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples out of their religious background of this kind of formulaic, showy, ostentatious way of praying. And he's trying to teach them kind of the right feeling behind prayer. He's trying to shape their prayer life rather than give them exact instructions on what they're meant to say, when they're meant to say it, and how they're meant to do it. He's teaching his disciples what real and genuine prayer looks like tastes like, feels like, you know, um, and that's why he says in verse 9, pray then like this, 
You see, he's not saying, pray this exact prayer. This is the only prayer you're allowed to pray. You have to pray the Lord's Prayer. What he's laying down is a template for prayer. He's laying down six foundational principles in prayer to shape the way that we pray. You see, when we come to the topic of prayer, for many of us, no matter our religious background, we seem to have this inbuilt, and it's all with all religion, this inbuilt desire to kind of want the format and the formula. A quick list of exactly what we're meant to do, how often, how long, what to say. Um, The religion of Islam is great for that. Pray five times a day, facing this particular direction at this exact time, saying these exact Arabic words, even if you don't know what they mean. Fantastic. Robotic. Beautiful. Don't even have to feel anything. Easy. But Jesus doesn't want prayers like that. We're not performing prayers to a distant deity. We're communing with our personal God. So how then do we pray? That's really the the kind of question Jesus is answering. In fact, in Luke's Gospels, that's when he gives the Lord's Prayer, is after Peter asks him, well, how are we meant to pray? And then he gives the Lord's Prayer. Tim Keller says it like this, the Lord's Prayer is a summary of all other prayers, providing essential guidance on emphasis and topics, on purpose and even spirit. The Lord's Prayer must stamp itself on our prayers, shaping them all the way down. It's about getting the right feel rather than the right formula. The Lord's Prayer shapes the way we pray, the, the kind of the direction of our prayer, more than the exact words that we do pray. And if you look at that Lord's Prayer, you'll notice that there's six petitions that Jesus gives us, six kind of requests being made to God. And if you notice again, if you look a bit closer, you'll notice that the first three all relate to our prayers concerning God, and the last three all relate to our prayers concerning us. And that's going to be my two points for today. How do we pray? Well, point number one, our prayers concerning God, and point number two, our prayers concerning us. Now, you may know the Lord's Prayer off by heart. You may have said it 100,000 times. If you grew up Catholic, you know, if you do the rosary, I think you do the Lord's Prayer something like 40 times in a row or something crazy like that, just when you've been really sinful, etc. And it's basic. It's simple. But contained within these words are profound realities that will shape us and help us to enjoy praying with God. Because the heart of true prayer is to seek all of God for all of life, for all the world. And that's really how I think the Lord's Prayer functions. It teaches us to seek all of God for all our life, for all the world. Let's jump into point number one our prayers concerning God. The first way that Jesus wants to shape our prayers is he directs us to God. You notice that it's God first and ourselves second, which is often precisely the opposite way in which we go about living our life and our prayer life. We go, 
okay, great, I've got God, he's on my side, I'm going to pray through my list. I've got these people I want to pray for, I've got these things I want to see happen, I want blessings, I want protection, I want health, I want all these things. And so we jump into, please God, please God, please God, please God. But the first way in which Jesus wants to shape our prayers is to direct ourselves up toward God himself, first and foremost. Let's read Matthew 6, verse 9 again. This first petition. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, as he prays this first line and gives this first kind of foundational pillar, what the Lord Jesus is doing for us is teaching us who we are and who we are praying to. Firstly, who we are. As we pray, we pray communally. This is a communal prayer. Our Father in heaven. We are, Jesus doesn't create an individualistic religion. He, it's a community. He's got the Sermon on the Mount. His disciples are in community with himself. We are in community with God and with each other. So first of all, you've got to notice this prayer is a prayer for us to pray personally and corporately for ourselves and for everyone we know. It's a, it's a communal prayer. So the first thing we see is that we, it's an us prayer. Secondly, he says, our Father in heaven. You see, Jesus is identifying who we are and who we are praying to. We are children of the Almighty God who's in heaven. You know, the Father, we pray not just to Almighty God, but to our God who is our very own Father. It's a beautiful and endearing term. In fact, it's quite an intimate term, that word father. It's not quite as personal as daddy because that has a little bit kind of irreverential sort of feel to it. It's sort of like papa or this kind of, you have this position, you are father, but I also have this personal connection with you. For the Jews in the time, they were more aware of God's transcendence, his otherness, his holiness. You know, they had the temple with the separation between the curtain where you couldn't go into the most holy place. And so God was big and holy and almighty. So for disciples, for these peasant you know, young guys to be praying, our Father in heaven, was to break into a quite a personal and intimate way of praying to God. It kind of contradicts the prayers of those who have lost sight of who they are praying to. The Pharisees were praying to people, performing their prayers, and Jesus is saying, you pray to your Father first and foremost, and you get to pray to Him. Jesus is emphasizing one of the most unspeakably high privileges we have. We, you and I, through Jesus Christ, through believing in him, through being followers of him, can address God as Father. And if you notice in that verses 5 through 15, how many times Father is referenced? You notice that he says, you know, when you pray, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't be like the Gentiles in their prayer, for your Father knows what you need. And then he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. 
It's beautiful. We take it for granted. We're, we're far more down the line of, we, we know God is our Father. For most of us, it's actually quite an intimate thing. But notice too, it's not just our Father. It's our Father who is in heaven. We have an imminent God who is close to us and a transcendent God who is totally other from us. So for some of us, we need to learn the Our Father bit. We always pray, Almighty Lord, God, Sovereign, Holy, Righteous, King. But we find it weird to approach our Father, perhaps because of our own personal life and circumstances. You may not have had much intimacy with your Father. But then for some of us, we're way too down the line of like, I'm just chilling with God, kind of intimacy, and we've lost sight of, yeah, you are, but he is the God who is in heaven, who rules all things, who is the creator of all and is holy and righteous. And so in this first foundational kind of prayer, Jesus is saying, we pray corporately as a community to our Father, we have this intimacy, but he is in heaven, he is almighty and transcendent. It informs who we are and who we are praying to. It's incredible what he gets done in just one sentence. Do you see God like this? What are your prayers, if we were to record them and write them down in a blog, how do you address God? What do they look like? What kind of terms do you use? What kind of intimacy do you share with the Father? And what type of reverential holiness do you have towards the Father too? He is the Lord and King but he's also our close and tender father. So our father who is in heaven, and then we come to the first request, hallowed be your name. Now that's kind of a weird word we don't use very often, hallowed, Um, but it's basically a word which means may your name, may who you are, your very personhood be reverenced, be set apart, be treated as special and and as distinct, Um, not to be treated lightly, not to be minimized or to be treated casually. This is the prayer that you can only pray if you love God, worship God, and want everyone in all the world to do that too. It's a prayer that all people in our community and in our city and in the world would hallow his name. That people would stop blaspheming when they hurt themselves or stop making graven images of the Lord or paying him out in cartoons. It's a prayer that God would be seen as holy in our lives and in the lives of those that we live with. Those who truly love God and know God want everyone, including themselves, to hallow him, to reverence him to treat him with the utmost respect and and dignity that he deserves. Do you have this passion in your life? Do you long to see God hallowed in your home, hallowed in your workplace, hallowed in your street? Or have we so lost touch with this idea that we could have a nation that worships God, that we could have cities and streets that bow in holy reverence to our Lord, that we pray, hallowed be your name, but we don't really intend for it to happen. Jesus is shaping our prayer, and the first thing he wants us to see is that we pray communally. We pray as children of the Father. We pray to the King of heaven, and we pray 
that he would be glorified and enjoyed and worshipped. That links us to the next two petitions which we'll deal with together. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer, what Jesus is trying to teach his followers here is to pray for those, oh, we pray here as those who long for this broken and distorted world to be set aright again. Jesus is coming, bringing the kingdom of God. Literally, people are being healed. You know, lame people are walking, blind people are seeing, demon-possessed people are being freed. The kingdom is amongst them. And so this prayer is that we would see God's saving reign extend to all people on earth. That we would see liberation first and foremost from sin and the powers of darkness and Satan, but that we would also see justice and righteousness reign in our communities. That we would have, you know, the poor cared for. That we would have those who were oppressed being liberated. When we pray for his kingdom to come, that's the type of things that we're asking for. And it's also a prayer longing for Jesus' return. You see, at this point, his kingdom was coming and it was near and it was amongst them. But this prayer is anticipating the day when the kingdom will come in fullness. The Lord Jesus will descend on a cloud. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And his kingdom will reign in complete surrender to his will. Do we really long for his kingdom to come in our community? Sometimes, for me, Sometimes I don't even think about it or expect it to happen. Do we long for our next-door neighbor or our friends and family to truly, today, bend their knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to come under his saving rule and reign? Do we really long for his will to be done? First and foremost, in our own life, you know, do I really want God's will to be done? That might mean I have to change how I spend my money, how I spend my time, what I like to watch, what I like to do. His will being done is his righteousness being evidenced in all of our life. Do we really want that? Well, the function of this prayer is to kind of bend our hearts in that direction, to want that to be the reality, even if naturally it isn't. Martin Luther, about this point in the prayer, says this. And it becomes, you know, incredibly faith-filled to pray, your will be done, when God's will goes against our comfort, our health, our wealth. Martin Luther says, grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity, and to recognize that in this, your divine will is crucifying our will. Grant us grace to recognize that your divine will, God's divine will, is crucifying our will. That's what it means to pray, your will be done. Not my will, but yours. And so Jesus here is shaping us to be the type of followers of him who trust God the Father enough 
who trust the Word of God enough, who know the Word of God enough to want His will to be done, no matter what it means for our life. Craig Keener says it like this, This is a prayer for the desperate, who recognize that this world is not as it should be, and that only God can set things straight. Are you desperate? Do you look upon the world with hopelessness apart from God's intervention? That's what this prayer is meant to kind of shape us, is to go, ah, we need his kingdom to come. We need his will to be done. Otherwise, we've got no hope. Otherwise, my neighbors have got no hope. Come, Lord, make it happen. It is a prayer that would see heaven break into all the earth. As it is in heaven, may it be done so here on earth. So in this first kind of set of petitions, the Lord Jesus directs us out of ourselves and into heaven. He lifts up our hearts corporately, out of our individual selves into our corporate selves. He lifts us out of our doubt and our fear and says, you have a father, pray to him. He's in heaven. He's all-powerful. The Almighty One ought to have his kingdom amongst us. That's how Jesus is trying to shape our prayers. Before we start praying for our necessities, we pray this worshipful, reverential, awe-inspired prayer. What does your prayer life look like? Do you begin here? Do you ever get here? How regularly? Well, whatever it's been like up until this point, may these prayers shape your future prayer life. May this become part and parcel of your instinctive of prayer. May this burrow down into your heart that you truly want these things. And if you don't, humbly confess them to the Lord. Like, I don't really care. I don't really hallow your name. I'm sorry, Lord. And ask him to change you. The heart of true prayer is to seek all of God for all of life, for all of the world. We now move to the second half of the Lord's Prayer and point number two. Our prayers concerning ourselves. You know, it's often not hard for us to think of prayer points and, and, you know, our wish lists and our kind of, if you could, Lord, it would be great for the house and the car and the kids and the marriage and the family, and that would be fantastic. But again, even here, the way the Lord teaches his disciples to pray drives to the more necessary rather than, you know, um, you know, Something, you know what I'm trying to say. The needs versus wants, that's it. Um, he drives us uh, to actually look at our physical needs and our spiritual needs. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. In this line, Jesus is teaching us and reminding us, even in the rich West, that all that we have comes from God our Father. That every morsel of food, every great meal we've eaten, everything that's in our pantry, we are totally dependent upon God to give it to us. And so recognizing this fact, we should pray and not presume upon God providing for us all that we need. You see, most people in Jesus' community lived payday to payday. Work today, you're able to eat tonight. 
you get paid at the end of the day, you go to the market, you buy your food, you eat it, you go to work the next day, and if you Sabbath, I don't know what they did. They were completely dependent upon God to provide their every meal. (laughs) When was the last time you prayed honestly, give us this day our daily bread? We don't... (laughs) We don't often, unless maybe you've been maybe, you know, new to a country, don't have much money, don't have much left in the bank account, have this same visceral sense that if, God, you don't pull through, my family goes hungry tonight. But in praying this, it reminds us to not presume upon God's grace. It also reminds us to be grateful for every bit of food and every bit of sustenance and all the physical necessities that he does provide. My temptation is to assume the presence, quantity, and quality of food every day and to grumble when it doesn't happen the way I like it, to long for that next great meal. I get a bit huffy even. But James chapter 1, 16 is a helpful reminder. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. This prayer teaches us and reminds us to humble ourselves and to petition the Lord to provide for us. And then it reminds us to then thank him in response, knowing that the food that I just ate, yes, I worked for it, yes, I earned it, yes, I got a paycheck, but all those things came from the Father of lights. And so it can renew our grace every day. We can be so grateful for that food because it came from our heavenly Father. It was a gift given by him. So that's the first way he's trying to shape our prayers for ourselves is to be dependent on him for our physical necessities. The second way he's trying to shape our prayers for ourselves, and I keep meaning corporately, is to pray for forgiveness. Read verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here, Jesus is picturing sin as a debt, a debt that you owe to God for disobeying him, and a debt which is owed to you or by you when someone sins against you. It's a debt, a sin is a debt which can only be released from an account through forgiveness. God forgiving us and us in turn forgiving others. And Jesus here is making a link between our willingness to forgive others as a true sign that we understand just how forgiven we are by God. And it's so helpful that Jesus includes this here. He's trying to shape his disciples, not just to be like, oh, Lord, please forgive me. I realize I'm a sinner, okay? I'm not pretending I'm not. But he gets to the heart of our pleas for forgiveness to see, do we really understand how greatly we have been forgiven? And the way he does that is by saying, how much do you forgive others? Friends, do you have a list of people who have wronged you in your life? Do you have a, a, an account where you've got, and you're aware of those people that have debts stacked up against you? And you kind of read through that list and, 
kind of think of, yeah, they've wronged me and they've wronged me and they've wronged me and I've been so wronged in my life. You think of who owes you and you stew on it. But when we consider how vast the sum of our sin before a holy and almighty God, when we realize how in debt we are to God, it can help us to process the debts that others have against us, the sins that others have against us. You see, if we were to truly look at our bank balance before God, we would be horrified. Every month, you and I receive most likely some form of um, credit card statement which tells you how much is due and when it is due. And I often look at that and think, will I have the cash to pay that on time because I do not want to pay those crazy 20% fees. I'm not going to be able to keep that up. But if we were to get a credit card statement from the Lord listing all the offenses, all the debts we've racked up against him, and realize that it's due today and that we have nothing in our spiritual bank account to pay for it, that would lead us and draw us and make us fall to our knees in pleading for forgiveness. And how great our gratitude would be for such forgiveness. So to be our attitude to those who sin against us. In response to how forgiven we are, in the warming of our hearts because of the forgiveness that God has offered us, we now are released from our debt so we can release others from their debt against us. So when people sin against us and they ask for forgiveness, you can, by the power of God's grace given to you, release that debt from them. But the warning here is if you are unwilling to release debt, if you want to hold on to grudges, if you want to keep that account book and stew on it and have revenge plotting in your mind, Jesus is warning you, perhaps you aren't forgiven by God because those who are truly forgiven, truly forgive. Finally, he prays for, he teaches us to pray for spiritual protection. So in our prayers for ourselves, we pray for our physical necessity, we pray for forgiveness, and then we pray for protection. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer to shape our hearts that we would run from sin and run to righteousness. It's also a prayer that we would be protected from our greatest enemy, Our greatest enemy is not some political figure or ideology. It's not communism, socialism, or traditionalism, whatever your bugbear. Our greatest enemy is the evil one, the Satan, our adversary, the one who would love to plunge you into spiritual ruin. And Jesus is shaping the disciples to be in a wartime mentality. It's so easy in our prosperity to slip into peacetime thinking. Even in our fight against sin, we think, oh, I've I've had a lot of progress. I'm I'm just going to live my life and just pray that God's grace will cover me. But this prayer is shaping our hearts to posture forward in in an attack and defensive position. You know, lead us not into temptation. Why do we need to pray that? Because we are so prone to sinful temptation. Whether it's through the test of adversity or the test of prosperity, 
We are so prone to fail that test. And so every day we need to be crying out for grace. It's a reminder of just how lowly we are that even redeemed saints, even full of the Holy Spirit, we are so prone to falling. And so Jesus is saying, pray for that protection. Get into battle. And how needful we are of protection from the enemy. You see, these prayer points concerning ourselves actually draw us out of our wants or our privileges and into our basic necessities. We need food to live. And so do the people in our community. And so this prayer, as we pray it genuinely, give us our daily bread. We're also praying, maybe I'm going to be a part of helping someone else have their daily bread too. How could you pray, give us our daily bread if there was someone in our congregation that didn't have enough food to eat? Forgive us our sins. It makes us think not only of our own personal sins, but the sins potentially of our congregation, of our community. Asking the Lord to forgive us for the heinous sins or the the subtle sins. Deliver us from temptation. It reminds us not just for our own protection, but protect our church, O Lord. Protect us from the evil one. You see, Martin Luther used this prayer to teach people how to pray. And what he did was with each one of these lines, he would basically just say, pray the line and then paraphrase a prayer that goes from that line. And by doing that daily, morning and evening, he taught his new Christians who were coming out of Catholicism into Protestantism how to relate to a holy God, how to be in church community, what they truly needed and where their hearts are meant to be directed. And that's how this prayer functions. And the reality is, is that we often live our life as if we can do it on our own. And this prayer teaches us the exact opposite. Paul Miller, in his great book, A Praying Life, says it like this. If we think we can do life on our own, we will not take prayer seriously. Our failure to pray will always feel like something else, a lack of discipline or too many obligations. You don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. You just need to be poor in spirit. A praying life isn't simply a morning prayer time. It is about slipping into prayer at the odd hours of the day. Not because we are disciplined, but because we are in touch with our own poverty of spirit. See, the Lord's Prayer teaches us that we are totally dependent creatures. Our salvation comes from the Lord. Our sustenance comes from the Lord. Our protection comes from the Lord. We are totally dependent upon the Lord. And so truly having this prayer shape us will help us to be spiritually poor, like Jesus said in the Beatitudes. And so that will help us to pray more regularly because we realize we need it all the time. Every breath, every step, every time we go outside, when we're at work, we need to be praying. That's what the Lord's Prayer teaches us. It encompasses all of life, all the world, and all of God. Because the heart of true prayer is to seek all of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To seek all of God for all of life, for our food, 
for our forgiveness, for our protection. To seek all of God for all of the world. This is not an individualistic prayer. This is a corporate prayer for our families, for our churches, and for our community. So, how do we pray? Well, the Lord Jesus has given us this master class. He's teaching us not exactly the exact recipe of these are the only six things you can pray for ever, but encompassed in them. If we, if we take each line of this prayer and then extrapolate further from it, if we begin our prayers Godward and then move outward, we're getting a sense of how the King Jesus wants his disciples to be, how he wants them to view the world, how he wants them to view themselves as children, as needy, and how he wants them to view God, a heavenly Father who longs to pray with you and answer your prayers. The Lord's Prayer is a powerful, shaping element in our prayer life. And if you're someone that is struggling with prayer and you're finding, I don't know how to, be, I don't know how to do it, I don't know what I'm meant to do, then let me encourage you, take the Lord's Prayer line by line and just pray one line and then try and riff your own kind of you know, two or three sentences after it. Then takes the next line and just try and guide your prayer two or three sentences in that way. And just keep doing that day after day after day. And you'll learn to pray the Lord's way. And in fact, that's how we're going to end our service today. I've asked a number of people in the church to come up and to pray like that, the Lord's Prayer in that way. Um, and so if those people could come up um, and pray, maybe standing in order, so... Um, you know, our Father in heaven here and work your way across. And we're going to join in prayer as a church communally and they're going to pray that line and then pray kind of an extrapolated prayer as an example of what this would look like, hopefully. We'll see how they do. And remember, they're not performing, they're praying. And so as we pray, let us direct our hearts to the Lord in prayer, our heavenly Father. Uh, let's pray, guys. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we celebrate you today as we stand in awe of your steadfast love and faithfulness this past year. We ask for humility and reverence before you, our holy and righteous Father, in whom we have personal access through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are with us in this community this city of Parramatta and in this world. May we hold firm to your word and be guided by your Holy Spirit today. Dear God, we pray that your kingdom will come. And we pray, God, that your saving rule would come and dwell among the people in Parramatta. And God, we pray that we would be your ambassadors of your kingdom to these people. And we, God, above all, we pray for the return of the king, for when you will come and you will reign forevermore. May we be pilgrims wandering to that kingdom, God. May we strive for it and above all, may we long for it above everything else. And God, may we not just long for the kingdom, may we long for the king of that kingdom, God, where we will dwell with you as your people. So God, may your kingdom come and may we long for it to be here and dwell with you. In your son's name I pray. Amen.
pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we pray that we faithfully live every day according to your righteous will, that your loving and perfect plan for this world is carried out so that Christians and non-Christians may see a reflection of heaven on earth. Dear Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We thank you, Lord, that you are the bread of life and pray that you would continue to sustain us in our daily walk. We pray that we will come before you with all our needs, physically, mentally, and spiritually. We thank you for your provision over us and pray that we will continue to hunger for your blood and body that was shed for us. And Father, forgive us our sins and help us to forgive those who sin against us. Many are our sins and great is our debt, O Lord. And thank you for your son Jesus who has paid it in full. Out of the fullness of our forgiveness, would you help us to pardon those who sin against us? And as a community, would we be reconciled to one another, not holding grudges, not having revenge or bitterness, but may we have the peace of the Holy Spirit reigning amongst us. Amen. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, we know apart from you, we have no ability on our own to live a holy life or to resist temptation that comes our way. We ask that you would, through your spirit, protect us and strengthen our faith that we could stand against the evil one. Help us look to you and treasure our relationship with you more during those times when sin tries to entice us with all the pleasures of this world. But Lord, even when we fall, remind us that your mercy towards us is abundant and that you have already won uh, victory over sin and the devil. Help us to run to you, Lord, and repent of our sins, that you would be glorified through our lives. Yes. May, yeah. Yours is the kingdom and the glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Please take a seat, guys. I'd like to invite the band up. Um, we're going to finish our time together basking in a song which again teaches us how to pray Um, you'll see it on your lyric sheet there a christian's daily prayer friends praying is one of the highest privileges we have as children of god let us spur one another on in the practice let us enjoy being in the father's presence and let us make it our our breath our, our kind of instinct is to be prayerful people talking to him for all things